Welcome to Cyber Context, the podcast featuring Jonathan Moore, the Chief Technology Officer of Spider Oak. Jonathan, uh, you know, the Ukraine war is going on and revealing more and more about our cyber capabilities and cyber defenses and Russian and other uh, bad actors and their cyber capabilities against us. It seems in the past week, the U.S. government has become concerned. It appears to have gotten the upper hand on this uh, one incident, but something called Pipe Dream, which I gather was a compromise that was directed at LNG, so natural gas facilities here in the United States. So um, not 100% sure it came from Russia, whether it was the Russian government or other actors, uh, but uh, probably (laughs) knowing what's going on in the world and with the target being gas, that's kind of interesting, of course, that's the one thing Europe seems still to have to buy from Russia if they want to keep the lights on. The price has gone up. Maybe Russia wants it to go higher still. Maybe Russia doesn't like the idea of Europeans buying our natural gas instead of getting it from there or getting it from Qatar. Um, you know, what does this tell us? This is sort of a, an interesting and different attack targeting critical energy infrastructure. Yeah, well, I think, I think yeah, I, this, this if, I, if I recall correctly, this has been attributed to Sandworm, which is the same threat actor that uh, attacked the Ukraine power system uh, in the past, uh, shutting power off to Kyiv in two different uh, events. And uh, it's, it is not, I mean, the, the, the pipe dream is a toolkit, a uh, piece of malware. So it's a piece of software or a collection of software and tools used to um, cause temporary or permanent uh, uh, loss of capability um in these industrial control systems so i think uh it's interesting and there's several interesting things about it so one i think that that it's i think we have a good belief that this is a real incident and not you know not just you know sort of propaganda and trying to show yet again we've got the better of russia either you know through intelligence or or um having better capabilities um it's actually been commented on and apparently the original Research and reverse engineering was done by Dragos, who's really the premier um, security company in these industrial control systems uh, in the U.S. So, so it is really interesting, and it does show if this was something that Russia meant to use, you know, uh, that they were trying to escalate and bring some of the conflict directly back to us domestically, which I think is an it, it, it would be an interesting shift we said if we saw it soften. We've heard the government. Um, warning us for months now that, hey, Russia's coming, right? And we haven't seen them yet. So I, 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 if it is an attack that we thwarted, that they meant to follow through on, that is really interesting. And I wonder what else, what else we are, we're defending against successfully. I think I'm super interested too, whether this was a detection that we caught early and stopped them by, by hard work and luck or whether this is tipped off by espionage, since apparently we've got some great espionage capabilities uh, in Russia, as we've repeatedly called out what their plans of the next week were, um, to, to their frustration. Um, so it's a, it is a very interesting event. Yeah, I'd like to talk more about these the vulnerability of these industrial control networks, but maybe before we get there, um, 
Another recent attack on U.S. energy-related infrastructure, of course, was Colonial Pipeline. It sounds like this potentially was much more sophisticated because it wasn't Colonial Pipeline. I mean, didn't that come down to, you know, a password that one of their senior officers said was really complicated, but nonetheless was was discovered and it was an attack on a billing system? Am I right? Is, is what we're talking about here more sophisticated than, than that one? Well, I, I think I'm not sure... I, Sophisticated may or may not be the right language to use, but I think that the right way to think about it is what the goal of the adversary was. So yes, Colonial Pipeline shut down because they couldn't do billing and they didn't want to give away energy for free. Um, but the goal of those adversaries was to shake down Colonial Pipeline, to get money in return, where the apparent goal of these adversaries was to shut down capability as a as a form of attack as a as a as a tool of politics and military not as a a way to make more money right so it was not a, a financially motivated attack it was a politically motivated attack so i think that that i think is really the big difference to see in terms of framework i mean you know without having these various things in hand and we we do not i do not have this in hand and if there is a report that's available i haven't read it myself I can't really speak to the actual level of complexity, but it was it, if it was targeted industrial control systems, you know, generally the goal in those systems is meant to overcome the safety controls in those systems that keeps the plant um, both available and safe for people in the vicinity, right? So you know, all all of these kind of systems work in you know control loops where you have some kind of of actuator and you need to keep some process within some safety bounds and you have a series of controls that allow you to keep that. And you probably have redundant controls, like you might have a pipe that is rated up to some pressure and you have some sensor test checking what the pressure is. And if it's a process of the heater, you have some heater control modulating the temperature to keep the pressure safe. And maybe you have another pressure release valve. So you have this whole set of systems and you need to keep everything within the safety envelope. And what we've seen that these uh, attempts have been historically is to subvert the safety systems to allow things to go out of the range of safe to cause temporary or permanent damage to the facility and lack of capability. So it's meant to deny capability uh, in a political or military context, rather than again, to temporarily deny capability as a way to ransom money out of somebody. So I think it's more important than sophistication is the goal of the attack. Interesting. With, I mean, how how interconnected are these systems? I guess sort of you think the the sum of all fears would be a cyber attack on a nuclear plant where you yank all the control rods out. The reactor is prompt critical. Maybe the fuel all melts. Maybe the reactor itself explodes. I mean, is, is that sort of the apex threat and is that uh, unlikely or is that actually within the realm of theoretically possible? Well, I mean, I, I think it, it really depends. Uh, well, I mean, theoretically possible. I mean, I believe it was in Bhopal, India, where there was the large chemical accident that killed thousands of people. Mm. Um, and so I think if you want to look at the extreme of what's theoretically possible, those kind of things are possible. Um, now, a well-designed system, should that should not be possible in. That, that incident was due to multiple failures at the administrative, largely at the administrative level, as well as the personnel level. Like there were, where there were safe, redundant safety systems that had failed and hadn't been maintained. 
there was insufficient staffing and all that kind of stuff. So should a cyber-only attack be able to cause that kind of large damage? I hope not um, in systems, but I got to be clear. I am not an expert in industrial control systems. I mean, I've got a little bit of knowledge, maybe just enough to be dangerous, but I don't want anybody to take anything I say as, you know, correct. But uh, uh, it's it's merely as 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 something to inform more research. Um, but so, you know, so I think the most likely thing we would look at is less human safety concerns and more lack of capability, right? If a if the natural gas plant can be damaged to the point where it takes weeks or months to repair, that would be, you know, a useful outcome for Russia, who is, you know, as you pointed out, is is primarily makes a lot of their economy selling natural gas, which is now has a limited market. And so that's sort of in their interests, or maybe it's just spiteful. And they feel like this is a way to rub it in our face in the same way that when they attacked Ukraine with the Nopeta attack, uh, the Nopeta attack, it used a leaked NSA exploit as part of that attack, not even probably necessary, but was a way to kind of, you know, thumb their nose at us. So maybe, maybe this particular thing, use of natural gas is not, uh, is more about making a point than it is the the particular outcome. Um, so so yeah, I think I think the loss of capability is probably the primary thing that you're looking at. Um, could it extend into harm or loss of life? It's possible. Hopefully, the systems are engineered such that you know there are controls outside this the cyber realm that would keep things in a safe envelope. So. Sticking still with industrial control, is is the APEC or the sort of quintessential, I guess, attack? Is it still the attack? I think was it on Natanz, the Iranian nuclear site, where you have a concentration of <clears throat> of centrifuges that enrich uranium or could enrich uranium, um, where in, in an Israeli U.S. operation, reportedly in the mid 2010s. Uh, an exploit was introduced um, by putting it on just a number of, uh, of memory sticks. And eventually, if you give enough of those things to enough people who work at the same facility, sooner or later, someone's going to plug one into a computer. Uh, and someone did. And, and it tampered with, I guess, just the, the speeds of the centrifuges, which are, are, are very sensitive. And I don't know if they exploded or just malfunctioned or you know were, were damaged or destroyed. Um, is that still kind of the the best known uh, success story of of one of these attacks? Well, let's let's hold our judgment for a second on success. I mean, mm-hmm. it is certainly one of the most well documented, um, highly technical attacks. So it was the the attack as we understand or as I understand it um, was they attacked. Uh, the IT networks of a contractor who worked at that facility infected their computers. That computer infected the thumb drive, which was then used to bridge the air gap and go to the air gap systems because the configuration files were moved from the engineering firm to the uh, production plant. Um, that was really interesting in that it was an attack that explicitly you know, jumped an air gap uh, and shows that air gaps are are have... Uh, a lot more connectivity, pretty much always. That's the thing that we've looked as you look into this more. Air-gapped systems aren't really ever air-gapped. They're just harder to get through. Uh, and then it was a it was a very well-engineered thing in that they were careful and that it looked for a very particular configuration of controllers and 
uh, and systems. So this couldn't accidentally be deployed at another plant. It was very targeted. And then it did some very devious things in that it sampled the, the measurements of some of the sensors about how fast things were running. And then when it ran its attack program to run at a, a sort of uh, duties duty cycles that were thought to damage the equipment, it would lie about what it was actually doing on the controls so that it was covert. Um, and, you know, potentially had the, the results of damaging center, several of these centrifuges. And now the question is, is what impact did that really have? I mean, did they significantly increase the rate of failure of centrifuges above what was already happening? Did that attack significantly, um, you know, push, you know, push out the time period in which the, the Iran would have acquired a critical amount of enriched uranium? Um, these are all questions that I think are not clear. I mean, certainly the press, which one we must imagine at some level is at least par partially propaganda, the press about this that are published in the U.S., it yes. was almost certainly had the influence of the state of, of the, the state who performed the attacks in it. So whether intentionally or unwittedly, we have to look at it partially as propaganda. Um, you know, how effective were those attacks? And it's not clear they were significantly impactful uh, mm -hmm. in months impact at best. And that maybe was politically useful at the time, given that we we're in the middle of negotiations about Iranian capabilities at the time. But maybe it also wasn't. So I think it's a little, uh, you know, it's a little unclear of the effectiveness of that attack. Um, so I'm not sure whether it's the most effective attack yet. I mean, a lot of these SCADA attacks are not well documented. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, but it certainly is one of the most complex technical attacks that's been documented. Now, shifting from <clears throat> technology to some of the, the policy if you want to call it that, implications of this, that um, uh, earlier, as we discussed in the last episode, earlier in the Ukraine war, you had uh, wiping technology deployed by Russia, um, targeting Ukraine and uh, care taken not to disable networks that the Russians themselves were, were using, perhaps in addition to the Ukrainians for their own command and control. Um, you know, this, if in fact it does turn out to be Russia and if, you know, what early reports indicate are, are true, uh, LNG facilities in the U U.S., I mean, and that's a big category, you know, we don't, we don't know exactly what that means uh, based on the limited information we have. But does that tell you anything about a, a shift or about the moda operandi of, um, of Moscow in the fight? <clears throat> well, if this was... Russia trying to strike at domestic U.S. facilities, it certainly seems like an escalation. And I think it's, it's an interesting escalation because one of the things we've seen historically is that uh, in lack of sort of global agreement about cyber, the, you know, uh, the facto, you know, de facto behavior seems to be that we do not consider uh, cyber attacks to raise the level of armed conflict. So mm -hmm. it shows... You know, it's interesting that it shows Russia going as far as they can to take actions against us without, you know, engaging in armed conflict against Western um, nations. And I think that in itself is sort of an interesting signaling. You know, they have been threatening about nukes. They've been threatening about, you know, 
attacking Scandinavia if they join NATO. They've been all these sort of saber rattling around the kind of, you know, uh, military uh, outcomes that might occur if we make the wrong decisions. And none of those have come to fruition. But this is seems to be one of the largest escalations they could make without uh, it crossing the 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 line of what has at least historically been, you know, the line of armed conflict. Yeah, that's interesting. In the Cold War, <clears throat> the, the fight between the KGB on one side and the CIA and MI6 on our side, it seemed like there was an unwritten code of conduct that eventually worked its way out. Same too with, uh, for example, the way that uh, fighters flying from Alaska or Maine would engage uh, Ru- Russian bombers that were coming over um, just on on patrols or to, on probing missions or whatever you want to call it, that there was sort of, uh, you arrive after a certain amount of time in a in a conflict, even a cold conflict with a code of conduct. Um, and it seems like we haven't really gotten there yet or that that sort of all sides are still feeling out what's permissible and and <laughs> maybe so far, I don't know, it's safe to say people are pushing on an open door because there often isn't a response and maybe there can't be a direct response in cyber war. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I think there's a lot of size to why why that is. I mean, one is it's very new. And I think our strategists don't understand cyber. You know, you still see a lot, hear a lot of generals in the US talking about more lethal cyber weapons or cyber bullets. We hear people talking about, you know, outmaneuvering somebody in cyber, like it's a physical field. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, cyber is radically different. You know, there are no borders in cyber. uh, Or, you know, in, in that you know, you might be able to say, well, we're going to draw our borders at all of the the undersea cables that enter the U.S. But, you know, each time you make a satellite connection, is that another border? Uh, when you have a VPN that connects from a European office into the U.S., that I think arguably is another border as well. So the borders are, uh, you know, reach to anywhere in the U.S., right? If I have, you know, uh, a company headquarters in the Midwest and it has a VPN that goes out to you know, India. Now I've got a border with India that that's in the the center of the country. So borders aren't at the edges. They're dynamic. They're changing. And I think that's another really key thing as well. That's so different about cyber that resists creating norms, which is that cyber is constantly in flux. You know, when you think about the norms of engagement at sea, in the end, the, the mass of water doesn't change. You know, boats still float next week uh, and new kinds of, you know, and boats that didn't float a week ago don't float next week. But in cyberspace, the rules change drastically, you know, in periods of months or years. So it, it's very hard to to have that sort of uh, understanding of what the, re- the realm is. And I think another real confounding uh, factor is that it's very hard to tell before uh, action is taken, the difference between espionage and military action, and that that's a very blurred line in cyber. And I think that that's that that we all accept that espionage is good for global stability in that, you know, we don't want any other people knowing our secrets because we want that strategic, those strategic secrets and capabilities. But we also kind of do want Russia to know how many nukes we have pointed at them and vice versa. Right. So, you know, a lack of knowledge between powers leads to more instability and more fear. So we we kind of accept espionage as part of the game 
and not not considered to be you know a a evil against humanity where we consider you know unjustified war to be such do we have the idea of war crimes and on and illegal wars we don't have the idea of illegal espionage so i think that that blurring of that line is also another confounding factor and, and i would say the last is is proliferation and that you know it's very hard to control these technologies so i think there's so many things that stop norms and it is so new and we wouldn't also have i think have maybe been resistant to put down norms because then once the norm then then we can't violate them either right nobody wants to take away capability so uh, i would say yeah we don't have norms but i'm not sure we ever will Interesting. If I could do a, a, a deep digression just for a minute, since you mentioned VPNs and in, in the in the case you illustrated, actually it was an instance of a VPN increasing vulnerabilities. I mean, you think of these things as a way for individuals to conceal your internet traffic from your uh, internet service provider or whoever. Um, do they actually make you more safe and secure? Or do they increase the number of attack surfaces that uh, an adversary can exploit? Well, I, I, I think that's a sort of complicated question to ask. So they, at one level, increase complexity, right? And you know, every line of code you add to a system is another line of code that might have a vulnerability. Um, they increase complexity in reason about the total system. Uh, they, you know, they um, confound ability to analyze traffic, you know, which if you're trying to observe an attack might make it harder. So in those ways, I, I think they do increase risk. Um, and I think the way they're applied is very often papering over risk. So a lot of times there are the way the reason they're used is because the historical approach to network security is to secure the perimeter. And so now if I'm outside, how do I use the resources on the inside, which are not properly secured? Well, I can use a VPN to extend my perimeter to just one more host that's outside of my physical network. And so in that way, if you have an insecure internal network, that VPN does provide you a control, which allows you to, quote unquote, safely use it from outside your network. But again, it's making your perimeter bigger. There's now yet another node and one that's very hard for IT to manage because it's somewhere out in the field, potentially, um, that now is considered part of your network, which by the fact that you're using a VPN kind of indicates that you don't believe that's secure in and of itself. So as a control, they do provide, they provide a reasonable control, which is saying that I don't want my traffic to be analyzable by third parties who are helping me transit between my VPN terminator and my, my endpoint, the two endpoints of my VPN. Um, and that in some scenarios can be a useful control that can make you safer. Um, you know, if you're worried about your ISP spying on you, right, uh, and selling your data and that's a risk you care about. A VPN might in, improve that. Probably not if you buy one of these commercial ones, because really what they are is aggregation points to go watch people. Um, and very many of these VPN companies have are themselves adversarial or have adversaries literally sitting at their door. Um, hmm. You know, we've certainly seen that with Tor exit nodes. 
Um, so, so it's a control, which if used properly might get you more security. But I think in practice, what we see is it's probably usually increasing risk. Hmm. That's fascinating. It's very interesting. As usual, with a lot of uh, what takes place in cyber, it's uh, it's sort of the answer is sort of it depends. You know, one uh, last area quickly for discussion. Um, another development in the Ukraine war was the sinking of Russia's flagship in the Black Sea, the Moskova. If I'm pronouncing that right, the Russian word for Moscow, the capital. Um, it's a flagship in their in the uh, excuse me the Black Sea, but it's an old ship. Uh, she was, I guess, laid down in the 70s, commissioned either late 70s, early 80s. Uh, pulled out of commission in the early 2000s, put back in, um, not nearly as sophisticated as, I would say, an early Burke-class destroyer um, of the U.S. Navy. But uh, anyway, she's now at the bottom of the Black Sea, having been attacked um, by the Ukrainians in, I, I gather, a domestically built cruise missile, <clears throat> uh, not a hypersonic one, not even a supersonic one, just a plain old cruise missile. But uh, is there anything that we should infer about the scrappiness of the Ukrainians or the state of the Russians or, you know, whether we are mirroring them when we when we look at this military, thinking that they have the same objectives and tools that we do, and in fact, they're, they're very different? Or is it best to, to keep what happens in the physical realm like a missile attack on a ship outside of our cyber assessment realm? Well, I mean, I, I'm not an expert in that field, um, but I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I personally find it interesting. This is the first use we've seen of this anti-ship capability that Ukraine has. Um, I think the questions we might want to ask ourselves is, you know, where did the Ukraine get their intelligence? Was it through signals intelligence? Was it through cyber? Was it luck? Was it uh, you know, a human asset, or what was it? Um, you know, support by another nation providing. Yeah, I was going to say an American P eight flying, <laughs> flying over the Black Sea, maybe. Yeah, I mean, so so I think there's, I mean, uh, I, there's, you know, the the truth of the details are hard to come by, you know, because both the Ukraine and and Russia have a vested interest in using this, you know, pr or producing propaganda around this. Um, you know, Russian claiming like, oh, it was just a a fire that happened on the ship and. The Ukraine claiming <laughs> they took it down, right? So technically true. Um, it was just a just a two thousand degree fire, burning <laughs> aluminum started by a cruise missile. But yeah, fire. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, I, I think we won't know the details, but it, it does show you know the ingenuity uh, of the the Ukraine. If if the reports that I've read about how the attack was pulled off and the subterfuge involved and the careful planning, um, and I do think we should you know uh, the the thing I would really like to know is more about Ukrainian cyber operations, right? We've been hearing a lot about Russian cyber operations, but it's very clear that Ukraine is working very hard to maintain capabilities and maybe use them in offensive ways that we don't really know all that much about. So I guess the, the intelligence aspects might be cyber related. And I think the just as more evidence to the tenacity and resourcefulness of the Ukraine, I think sort of brings back to what, what, where, how is that playing out in cyber? Right. Right. And well, the history is being written and uh, will we'll reveal itself over time. It's about all the time we have for this episode of Cyber Context. Thank you, Jonathan Moore, Chief Technology Officer of Spider Oak. I'm Christian White, and we'll be back again soon with another episode. Thanks for listening.